Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. With its incredible biodiversity and staggering human population, India has been at the center of conservation in recent decades. India's government and biologists have led the charge in increasing tiger numbers, as well as organizing unheard of conservation initiatives, like reintroducing cheetahs to India's grasslands as recently covered on the podcast. Since species like tigers take up so much of the spotlight, it's easy for other important species to fall into the shadows. So what's going on with some of India's other endangered charismatic species, like rhinos and dolphins? And on a bigger philosophical scale, do tiger reserves actually work for biodiversity as a whole? To chat about greater one-horned rhinos, gangetic river dolphins, and tiger reserves, today we're sitting down with Harshina Jala, wildlife conservationist and PhD student at the University of Minnesota. Harshini's love of nature and wildlife was nurtured early in life by her father, as he himself is a very accomplished carnivore scientist at the Wildlife Institute of India. Harshini saw her first greater one-horned rhino at the age of 14 in Suraha, just outside of Chitwan National Park in Nepal, and she knew she wanted to contribute to conserving the species when it came time to go to college. For her master's, she published an influential paper on the feasibility of reintroducing rhinos and water buffaloes to areas of their historic range in India. And from that moment on, she was hooked on merging conservation science and policy to save India's wildlife. After her master's, she had a stint working on a project studying gangetic river dolphins and is now working on her PhD to answer a very important question. Does relocating people out of tiger reserves actually work for biodiversity? And if so, on what scale? We chat about so much rhinos, crazy adapted dolphins, and the always taboo topic, conservation ethics. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe to the Rewildology newsletter at rewildology.com to stay up to date on all of the show's updates. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and follow the show on your favorite social media app. And now, friends, here is my conversation with Harshini Jala. Hi, Harshini. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and traveling back to a destination that has been on the podcast before, but with some species that haven't been. And I'm so excited to talk about them. So let's oh my gosh, let's just dive in. What is your story? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like And how in the world did you decide or why did you decide to study wildlife? Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I've been following your podcast for a while. And so this is great. My story is kind of not how most conservation stories go. So I grew up in northern India in a small town called Dehradun, which is not so small anymore. (laughs) But I actually am originally from a western Indian state of Gujarat. That's where we have the Asiatic lions. My dad works in conservation. So that's how I kind of have been into this field ever since I was a little kid. I would join him whenever he went out to field. And it's been something that I thought was a really cool job to do when I grew up. My parents obviously hoped that I would grow out of it, especially my mom. She, I think, (laughs) did not want another person who was like nerdy, crazy about wildlife in the house. But sadly, I am that now. That's awesome. And yeah, I think my dad had a huge role to play in where I am today. And he's been a great mentor. So what did he do? Like, did he like uh, take you around or, or like what? Yeah. What is, yeah. <laughs> so my dad is a scientist at the Wildlife Institute of India. And I would join him for every field trip that I could join him in. So up until I was around two years old, I was actually living in field with my parents. My dad used to work out of base camps in Western India, working on wolves and hyenas. And so that, that was my childhood. I don't remember much of it, but yeah, I've, I've heard cool stories about it. You said wolves and hyenas? Hyenas, yes. Striped hyenas. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Yeah, they're like really cryptic, but like awesome species. I think they're on my top five favorite species ever. 
Yeah, and you've seen them. Have you actually seen some in the wild? Yes, a lot. I mean, just because I grew grew up around them, so. (laughs) I have not seen those in person. I've seen spotted and browns, but I've not seen stripes. Well, you definitely have to now visit. And yes, <laughs> done. Let's get another species on the list for sure. Awesome. So it sounds like, yes, that growing up around wildlife was just in your roots from day one. But again, there there could have been a question mark on whether or not you actually wanted to go in to study this for real, for real. So what inspired you to continue on and make this an actual like lifelong dedication? I think when I first like decided it was going to be a career choice, it was just me wanting to be a field technician just because I loved being out there in the field. And then eventually when I started doing my undergrad from Mumbai at St. Xavier's College, I kind of had a really good mentor there who kind of like showed me that field technician is not the only way to go about this. And I guess conservation could have been something that I was interested in. Isn't yeah. it crazy how sometimes you're just like, wait a second, when you actually reflect back when you're like, because you could have done anything, I'm sure. But deciding to make this a career like that's a one. No one does that for no reason. You know what I mean? Like there's so much yeah. passion in this field that like you don't. Otherwise, it just makes more sense to pursue money. Right. And obviously, if you're in this field, you're not in it because of money. No, it, <laughs> right? it, it does not pay well. So no. it's definitely not the money. I guess it was just. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've seen my dad work in the field and it's just made him so happy. Like he is a mm. different person when he is out there. And it just was something that I wanted to do was like just be happy out there in the field. But then because I guess he and a lot of mentors that I've had in life are so oriented towards conservation, it kind of shifted my focus from just being like out there in the field, collecting data to conservation. And also, I mean, it's kind of something you would have to do if like I wanted to continue in the field working, I would need wildlife there. And like if they aren't conserved, I wouldn't have any species I would want to work on. So. Right. It's full circle. Isn't it funny how we like start down this one path and then you're like, shit, I have to do this other thing in order to make sure that I can go do this other thing that I really love. Happens to me all the time. Like I love traveling and I want to go travel around the world to see amazing species around the world. But to do that, we have to make sure that the people that are living with them have everything that they need Mm -hmm. to be able to handle the conflict of living with this usually not fun to live with species and on and on and on. It's, It's a whole thing. I totally understand. So let's Let's start then with the, I I don't know if it's your first love of your life, but a very big, strong love of your life. And that's rhinos. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. I I got it. Okay. I got it. So let's talk about rhinos. So what did you end up studying? Like how, what did you learn about them? And maybe even some fun facts. We did talk about them a little bit in the Nepal series. Mm -hmm. It was pretty crazy. That was like a year ago now. How wild is that? So teach us again, this, this very special Mm -hmm. species of rhinos, maybe what's special about them. And then, yeah, what you learned. Okay. So I first saw my rhinos funny in Nepal. We were visiting Chitwan. I was 14 and I remember seeing rhinos in the river right next to Soraha. And I was like, whoa, these animals are so cool. And then I never thought when I was 14, I would end up studying them for my master's dissertation, but I did. And it was awesome. So what I looked at for my master's dissertation was potential reintroduction sites across the Indian subcontinent. Because historically, rhinos have ranged from the Indus floodplains into Burma. And, you know, now they're just like a few pockets of their populations left. And the reason why I wanted to look at reintroduction sites was because these are big herbivores and they are kind of ecosystem engineers. So they kind of facilitate the other species composition that exists in a grassland system. And so once you take the rhinos out, you lose a lot of other grassland species, which has what has happened in a lot of North Indian Indian subcontinent. And so 
basically the idea of reintroducing rhinos in these areas would be that once you get the rhinos back in, the ecosystem would change eventually for you to get the other species that we have lost. So like you could bring back the this Barasingha, the swamp there in a lot of uh, national parks across India, Nepal and Bhutan. You could bring back the hispid hare, the the Bengal florican, and all of these are like endangered species that have been lost from a lot of these areas. And so that's what I was aiming to do. It's still on the way. But yeah, funny enough, when I was studying the rhinos, I kind of used water buffaloes as a surrogate species because they have the same habitat requirements and then ended up actually combining them as my target species for reintroduction too, because I ended up collecting enough data, which I wasn't initially hoping or planning on. But that was great because now I I love two mega herbivores that we get in <laughs> the Indian subcontinent, which is great. The buffaloes, I guess, require more conservation efforts than the rhinos do at this point. So I really hope that this translates into something. Why is that? What's going on with the buffaloes? Just the fact that, so I guess just because they aren't as in, intensively studied as rhinos, there aren't mm. enough conservation efforts in place for them. And then there's a problem of them breeding with domestic buffaloes. And so there's hybridization. And in Northeast India, you can't really tell a wild buffalo apart from a domestic one. So just hybridization and then that causes a lot of disease transmission too. Mm. So, And that makes sense. All that makes sense. Well, as you were talking about these rhinos being ecosystem engineers, it just reminded me of the analogy of like hippos. When hippos mm -hmm. are where they need to be in Africa, then all the other species can come in because of the highways that they make and waterways and all this stuff. So if you don't have hippos and a lot of other species can't be in the area. And it sounds like a really similar analogy to the ecosystems that rhinos used to inhabit in India, which is super cool. Is there any, well, two questions. One. Are there currently any greater one-horn rhinos in India somewhere? And if there are, how many? And then is there any hope of bringing them back to other places? Okay, so India actually has the largest population of the one-horn rhinos. So technically, it's only India and Nepal that have the Indian or the greater one-horn rhino. There is a park called Kaziranga National Park mm -hmm. in Assam, which has the highest population of these rhinos, I think. I think there are around over 2,000 of them there. Ooh, that is a uh, lot. <laughs> that, that's a lot, yeah. But they're all basically confined in this one national park. And other than that, there are several smaller populations across Northeast India in the state of Assam. And then one actually very close to, it's called Dudwa National Park, which was actually where rhinos were reintroduced, just like they were in Shuklafanta and in Bardia in Nepal. Oh, cool. Um, so there has been previous efforts of reintroducing rhinos and they, that has been successful. So we know that if you, there are more potential sites, which my study found that there were, it isn't that difficult to actually reintroduce them because we've already done it once and we've already been successful. Mm. So what's the current status on that? Do uh, you foresee them being reintroduced anytime soon or... What do you think? There was something on the way a couple of years ago before COVID hit. So the state of Uttarakhand mm. was going to, or at least planning on reintroducing rhinos in Carpet Tiger Reserve, which it would have been the westernmost distribution of rhinos if they were introduced there. I guess COVID kind of stalled a lot of things. So we, we'd see how it progresses. Mm -hmm. And... Since it's totally top of mind, because we are recording this on International mm -hmm. Tiger Day. So I'm sure that just your social media is blown up. My social media is blowing up with all things tigers. And while tigers, I am obsessed with them. So I do not want to minimize their importance. Because mm -hmm. everyone who's been following this podcast for a while knows I'm obsessed with tigers. But would a species like that, that is so famous... Does some does sometimes like a big charismatic species like that take maybe attention away from these other species that might be just as important? Have you seen things like that or am I just implying things? 
that maybe that's um, going on. <laughs> so I guess I haven't personally ever witnessed like charismatic species taking away the limelight of other endangered species just because if they're endangered, there are conservation efforts in place for them. But I guess you could use these charismatic species as like funnel for conservation funds. I mean, and it just doesn't have to be oriented towards that particular species, like for rhinos or tigers, for example, like it then becomes more about conservation of the system they live in. So the funds go to everything else in the park or in the system that they live in. So, it, I mean, if planned correctly, conservation efforts for charismatic species could help a lot of other species too. Mm. Yeah, especially if, I mean, the rhinos just need so much habitat mm -hmm. that like yeah. if the entire area that they were re reintroduced to was protected, then that is a lot of land. And having seen... <laughs> rhinos and tigers in the same place with mm -hmm. my own eyes it, i mean those just go together so we just yeah. got to get the rhinos there <laughs> so like most of the the parks that have rhinos correct currently in india also have tigers and they are designated tiger reserves and i don't see a lot of conflict between conservation efforts for either mm -hmm. so i think it i kind of works out like you can have you have one protected area and if you have two endangered charismatic species it becomes more focused and more like you can target your conservation efforts more precisely out of curiosity i don't know like the exact like gis if you're like looking mm -hmm. down at india but are there any natural corridors that are bigger because you know like today like i've been to all those areas but mm -hmm. Are there any natural corridors that are big enough or long enough where rhinos could potentially migrate themselves or passively move and expand the territory? Or what do you think? Or is there is the population, a human population, just too big where it is going to take human intervention in order to expand the range? Okay, so funny enough, it's something that I'm working on right now. It's oh. uh, <laughs> uh, I am actually yet. doing the analysis. <laughs> Right before we had we started this conversation, so no uh, way, wow. I did not know yeah. that. <laughs> no, so there are a lot, lot of potential corridors for not just for rhinos in general, but like looking at just all herbivore species because the requirements would be very similar for corridors for all these species. But the problem is just because rhinos are such like a grassland obligate species, like they need such like a niche environmental conditions to live in like you would need a habitat mosaic grasslands forest water and to have that continuously throughout a corridor is difficult because a corridor is technically not the same level of protection as like a national park or a wildlife sanctuary that being said there are a lot of natural corridors that exist between rhino populations in india and nepal so right Below the southern side of Chitwan, there is a Valmiki Tiger Reserve. And Valmiki has a very small population of tigers right now. I mean, of rhinos right now. I guess they have four or five rhinos. But the River Gandak actually acts as a corridor for rhinos to colonize Valmiki. So if that is left intact, it could potentially be a, like a really good corridor. And I guess... Elephants and rhinos use that to like go back and forth between Valmiki and Chitwan too. And then similarly, there's one across from Bardia into the, the state of Uttar Pradesh, which has several tiger reserves there. So yeah, there are a lot of corridors. They need a lot of protecting given how development is happening in both India and Nepal. So let's see mm -hmm. how that changes. And from a prehistoric or just like a, not prehistoric, but a historic range. Were rhinos found all over India before, or did they have like a Southern limit that they could go to? I mean, how, how spread out did they used to be before we took all the land? Before we took all the land. <laughs> before That's we took so. all the land everywhere on the entire planet. So... There have been a lot of historical mappings of where rhinos were found. And I think the southernmost they have been were 
the southern boundary of the Gangetic floodplains. So just because, I mean, and I think the mapping's based off of the habitat requirement of the species. And so as mm. you move more towards peninsular India and you hit the Deccan, Deccan Plateau, it's just the habitat changes and it becomes a lot drier and there isn't enough surface water for them. So it, I guess that that's what made people decide that was the sudden boundary. But I, there has been some prehistoric evidence in rock paintings in areas... Wait, I remembered this. So there have been rock paintings in Madhya Pradesh that depict rhinos, some close to Bandavgarh National Park, some are in the Chambal Valley, which is towards more towards Rajasthan. And currently that area is like really dry. So wow. I don't imagine having rhinos there. But also like, I'm not sure whether there were rhinos present there that people saw and drew in on these cave paintings or were they just like travelers who have seen rhinos somewhere else and it just ended up being depicted at this particular place. But it's really interesting. Yeah, that is a really good question. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Got to keep us posted on that <laughs> whenever that is discovered. <laughs> like, what is the rhino's prehistoric southernmost range? Because I've been to the southern part of India too. I actually haven't been to like the classic parts, you know, like the northern area and like all mm -hmm. of the tiger reserves in the middle. Like, I never, I went at the wrong time of year to go to all those. All those were shut down. It was the monsoon season. You know, I just got really wet, but it was fine. <laughs> I still had a lot of fun. <laughs> I still had a lot of fun. I need to go back. Okay, cool. And so, obviously, just like as you said, you know, the fun part is going out and seeing them. But there is a there is a big conservation question here. You mm -hmm. know, rhinos all over the world are you know pretty endangered, mm -hmm. and they have like a lot of issues that are facing them for various reasons. From an expansion standpoint or from like the Indian conservation of rhino standpoint, are there any big concerns about, so like, let's say that we would put them somewhere else Would this, would patrolling have to increase a lot? Is poaching a big thing? Mm -hmm. Like what are the potential problems? Well, I guess one in general, what problems are rhinos facing mm -hmm. in India? And then if they would expand, what could potentially happen? What do we need to put in place to make sure they survive? Mm-hmm. I think the major issue would be just upgrading the protection system of the parks because, I mean, we know that rhinos are being poached for their horns. And so then that would eventually lead, I mean, if you had a new population that you established, you wouldn't want to lose any of those individuals to poaching. And so whatever parks that do decide to reintroduce rhinos in the future would have to definitely increase patrolling, increase staff, just ground staff. But I guess the other aspect that we have to look at is these are big herbivores. And unlike a lot of protected areas in South Africa, our protected areas are not fenced. So the wildlife goes outside our protected areas. And we have uh, most of our population depends on agriculture. Mm, and you would mm -hmm. have rhinos crop raiding and rhinos do eat a lot. So imagine the losses farmers would face just because of that. And that in turn would like kind of create a negative attitude of people towards rhinos or just wildlife in general. And it's a vicious circle. So that is something that the park management needs to have in place before the reintroduction happens too. So probably a compensation policy or something like that. Uh, yeah. Which is, I guess, another, I guess it's same in Nepal too, where crop rating is a big issue. So I think people's perception matters a lot when you're looking at conservation. Yeah, absolutely. Like being so when I had the amazing opportunity to sit down and record that Nepal series, like I sat down with a woman whose mother was killed by a rhino. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it doesn't get more hard or real than that when someone yeah. does as important as your mother loses their life because of a rhino and to also just see and well, for that particular location, 
tourism is so strong mm-hmm. because of the rhino that they, you know, get a lot of compensation for that. You know, most people are, most people have jobs because of the tourism of that area, mm-hmm. but it's not the same in other parts. So like, I mean, luckily it sounds like maybe the tiger reserves would have some sort of mm-hmm. tourism wherever they would come back to. But, you know, another gal that I had, Bijou, like she, her small little village had really big elephant conflict, but no... Mm-hmm. No benefit of having the elephants yeah. there. So, like, all of these other people that are taking the brunt of living with this wildlife. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, these are real questions that we have to think about, you know? Like, when you bring this big, massive, charismatic species back, like, okay, well, how can people live with them? Because it's just a matter of time before that rhino wanders somewhere, just like you yeah, said. Yeah, and <laughs> it's really easy for us to be like, oh, let's, let's reintroduce rhinos here. This is, like, a perfect park to get them, but then... Uh, what about the people like they're going to be living with rhinos in their backyards do they really want that and right. what are the benefits that that they are getting from it so i guess we'd really have to look into that before the reintroduction kind of goes ahead but there are a lot of parks that have these compensation policies for other herbivores and for like like livestock depredation by tigers and so it wouldn't be very difficult for them to translate that into a policy for another species that they were introducing. That's helpful. (laughs) (laughs) To have something in place is really helpful. Especially as we will transition to the tiger reserves. Mm -hmm. A lot of those, I mean, there's already established protected areas that just as you said, already have all of these things pre-set up. They're just missing the rhino. So we just need to get the rhino back. Some of them, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Is there a timeline at all? Or do you foresee a timeline on when maybe rhinos will be in more areas? Or what do you think is going to happen? As soon as possible. But I think it totally depends on how the government decides to go ahead with this. Mm. Do you know if there's any, there's been any like surveys or any like workshops or just group t- chats with people about bringing the rhino back? I'm just, I'm just curious from the uh, aspect. No, I guess this was just a proposal that was sent by the Wildlife Institute of India to the, the, the Minister of Forest in the state of Uttarakhand and they seemed really keen. So it was in the very preliminary stages of being talked out. So that's, I'm hoping that it would resume. Ooh, so we're like right at the beginning of this. <laughs> this is like, this is fresh. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fresh two years ago, but then it right. has been de- right there for the last two years. So right. I'm like really hoping to see how this goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm still like pretending that COVID never happened. So like, okay, so we're just going to pause those two years because nothing happened in those two years. Yeah. And so now hopefully as the world reopens and tourism starts back up and like people are working again, these bigger projects can start being being chatted about but yeah once you have updates we'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about that because i need to know i need i love those rhinos i love those rhinos so much where you i I know exactly where you just said you saw your first rhino outside of Mm sarah on the river Mm -hmm. me too i saw the exact (laughs) same one in bagmara community forest right yeah oh yeah that's where i saw my same one it was like (gasps) it's exactly where i saw my first rhino too Oh, cool. Well, speaking of rivers, mm-hmm. I want, I had no freaking clue that you worked on river dolphins. What? For a second. I know it was a brief second, but I didn't even know that the Ganges had a river dolphin. So mm-hmm. could you just, I don't, as long as you want or need, could you teach us about the Gangetic river dolphin? Maybe how they're different, anything about them that you learned? What's, are they endangered? I mean, I, they must be because mm-hmm. I've never even heard of them, but please just give us a spiel on them and what work you did with them. Yeah. So I, after I finished my master's, decided to take a dive quite literally in the aquatic (laughs) system just to see whether it was a field for me because up until then I had only worked on terrestrial large animals. So I joined this conservation project for the river dolphins with the Wildlife Institute of India. And it was really something like, I mean, I'd never worked on aquatic systems before. So for me, it was really new. So it turns out there are five freshwater or river dolphin species across the globe, and India has one of them. 
which is the Gangetic River dolphin. It's split between two subspecies because hmm. Indus has its subspecies, which is called the Indus River dolphin, and then the Gangetic River dolphin. And I guess they were they're pretty genetically similar, so they're considered two subspecies. India, so. This river dolphins basically found in river systems of Ganga, Brahmaputra, and all of its tributaries. So the river actually in Chitwan, Kandak, which is called Narayani in Nepal, has river dolphins. So the next time you're there, you should definitely go look out for them. Oh, how um, cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think the population's that big, but they definitely do have them in Narayani too. So turns out these b- dolphins are almost blind because the water in these river systems is so turbid, they don't really need eyesight. So they work on echolocation like bats do, which is really cool, but also it makes it super hard because then we can't see them in murky waters either. Yeah. And so the project basically focused on estimating population of these dolphins in all the river systems that they exist in and then identifying hotspots where we would like concentrate our conservation efforts just so to get benef- maximum benefit out of the money we were spending on the project and then because these dolphins are found in these river systems and we have a lot of fishermen communities fishing in the same river systems. There's a lot of conflict between dolphins and these fishing communities because they technically are after the same thing, fish. So a lot of these dolphins get caught up in fishing nets and drown because they need to breathe air. They are mammals and they can't surface because they're entangled. So A part of the project also worked with creating awareness with these communities, providing just alternative methods to fish so that the dolphins would know the nets are there. So we used something called as a pinger device, which Mm. sends out sound beeps every few seconds so that the dolphins know that there's an obstacle or something there so they don't get entangled in the nets. We were experimenting how effective these pingers were to preventing bycatch and so they are pretty effective and so I guess a lot of fishermen communities would be given these fingers from the institute to kind of reduce bycatch death of these dolphins. Do you know how much those were received by the fishermen? Were they like oh yeah I'll do that or they're like no I don't care? Do you know what the reception was? I so when I was working we were still kind of figuring out how people's perception to these fingers were So we were still surveying and just conducting experiments on whether or not they work, uh, which recently my colleagues at this project published a paper saying it works. So yay, there is a way out. (laughs) Good, good. That is wonderful to hear. So I looked up the pictures of these dolphins and anyone, if you're listening right now, if you're not, if you can safely look, just look up Gangetic River Dolphin and their teeth are wild. I'm like, that's a freaking Gariel dolphin. So, I mean, why do they have such intense teeth? Because like pretty much all dolphins are fishers. So like, what's up? Do you by chance know what's up with those crazy psycho teeth? (laughs) I actually do not, but I'm guessing it's the size of the fish they go for. And so it's just, and also because probably this is, more of speculation than actual science because I don't really know. Also, this is a species that hasn't been studied that much. So if someone out there wants to go study them, it's an open niche, please go ahead. But I'm guessing because they're found in such murky waters, just grabbing onto whatever prey you can get would be a benefit, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Not sure. This is good speculation. Yeah, it's just the just first thing that I noticed. First thing I noticed, because you know, I've also had some other river dolphin experts on, but mm-hmm. on the, you know, in South America, literally as far away as possible. And, you know, pink river dolphins, like they don't have mm-hmm. those same vicious teeth. <laughs> it's just, like, I, I was like, wow, look at that thing. That thing is like, I mean, they, I mean, they they're go completely dolphins. safe. They, they, they don't bite when you get into the river. Oh um, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. all good. 
Yeah, exactly. I you didn't get any bites. There was other things to be worried about than than the dolphins. But yeah, I, that was just the first thing I noticed. And and again, seeing like the gharials myself, like and knowing that very evolved, adapted mm-hmm. snout with those crazy teeth. Yeah. That's why I was like, oh, well, do you so know what those are for? The preference is very similar, both mm. the and the river dolphin. But I guess you'll find gharials in a more clear water. Oh. Because they depend a lot on their eyesight. Whereas the dolphins, they technically don't have any. So they are found in more murky waters. Oh, that makes sense. All of that makes sense. You just clicked a lot of things for me in my head. Well, okay. So you said that that was a project you're no longer working mm-hmm. on. No, so. I'm not. <laughs> The way I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't work on something I saw for two seconds and then it disappeared in the water. I, I, I mean, hats off to people who work on these critically endangered species that they never see and they are still doing like a great job, like having conservation stuff raised for them. But I, I cannot do that. I need to like see the species and connect with it to actually work with it. <laughs> yes, I completely understand what you mean. So this is the perfect segue to talk about what you're doing now. So you are working on your PhD and you have a very interesting question that you're diving into. So before I spoil it, why don't you just tell all of us exactly what it is that you are looking at and how did you come up with this particular research question? Okay, so my PhD research is basically looking at biodiversity responses to relocating residents from within protected areas. And so in 2006, India came up with the idea of incentivized village relocation. So what the Indian government does is it asks people to voluntarily move out of national parks or protected areas, and they incentivize it by giving them a monetary financial package which works out. And so the idea behind it is when protected areas are formed, a lot of local communities that live within that area are displaced and moved out. And that has happened in the past in India and all across the world where people have been displaced and moved out because you formed a new protected area for conservation. The thing is that a lot of these displacements are looked on negatively because of the ethics behind it. Like people have rights too, and you cannot just move them out. And it is kind of a win-win situation because you create these inviolate wilderness areas for wildlife, but you're also giving compensation to people to move out and they're moving out of their own free will. Uh, And hopefully to a better life outside because no one wants to live in a forest where your crops are under threat, your life is under threat, you have tigers and lions in your backyard. So the, the thing is that most of these relocations that happen are happening within tiger reserves because it's a tiger conservation policy. So the tiger reserves in India are basically divided into a core, which is technically the central zone of the tiger reserve, which ideally should be devoid of all human habitation. And then you have the buffer region, which is a multiple land use area with conservation as one of its priorities. And so the National Tiger Conservation Authority wants to create these in violet spaces for tigers in core areas. And so they are voluntarily asking people to move out and incentivizing it from within these core areas. And we know that there is some evidence that tigers definitely do benefit when people move out. There have been studies that have shown that tiger female tigresses breed when human pressures have reduced in certain tiger reserves. And so we know it works for tigers. What we don't know is how it works for other biodiversity. So India pumps in so much of money into this conservation program. And between, I think, 2014 and 2018, we spent over $40 million just voluntarily asking people to move and moving people out. And so if we are spending so much money and we don't have enough scientific evidence of whether it works or it doesn't, and if it works, to what degree does it work? How does restoration actually happen in these areas? So that's what I want to look at for my PhD, how restoration happens once you've moved people out of these tigerisms. That is a genius question. And I I have to ask, because I feel like all of us 
we have this moment, like, what is our question? Like how, like, what is our, why, what is our mission? How did this question come to you? I think a lot of it again has to do with my father because he works in tiger conservation. So it's kind of a general everyday talk for us over dinner table. It's such a cool dinner table chat. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess when, so when I did my master's, I was really hoping for my science to kind of translate into policy. And when Uttarakhand said that they were going to reintroduce rhinos. It kind of gave me a huge kick. I was like, whoa, this is research actually translating into conservation policy. And I want to do that. Like I want to bridge that gap between science and policy and probably work on something that will help that for my PhD. And so that's how I came up with this. Because I I guess we are going to incentivize relocating people so if we can target or if we can figure out where exactly it works or if there is something that isn't working and then change our policy according to what science tells us that would be great because at the end of the day it's public money like taxpayers money and we're using it for conservation so you would want to make the most out of it and how do you plan on answering this question because biodiversity that is a big that's a big concept so i mean the one thing about tigers is that it's easy it's a species you could be like mm-hmm. are there more or not is there stress or not you know like that that's a pretty relatively speaking question to answer but biodiversity that that's a hard question so how in the world are you actually going to go about this okay so i've split my questions into three categories and that's how i plan to address them for my phd we'll see it might change because i've learned that a lot of things in wildlife sciences changes when things don't work out Uh, (laughs) correct so the first thing i want to do is just look at forest cover and i'm i've just how forest cover has changed over the years once people have been moved out so i would look at times since relocation within tiger reserves so when were people moved out and then how forest cover has changed and so i'm going to use a gis and remote sensing data for that and then the second part would be actually doing vegetation surveys so looking at how vegetation succession has happened at these relocated plots so what i mean by relocated is once the village has been moved out the the area that the village used to be in is this relocated plot and so it's most of the times it's either managed by the forest department to create a habitat for a particular species or it's just left to restore itself and so then of course the vegetation succession would depend on how it, the area is managed so you could if i had enough data points back into time i could look at how vegetation succession has happened over time and if at all these relocated sites get the same vegetation composition as intact sites. And then the third is I would do similar stuff that I'm planning to do with vegetation with mammalian recolonization. Mm. So I'm going to use camera trap data to look at the species composition and how that changes as time progresses from since relocation has happened. And do you have any guesses? I mean, since you have been literally since you were born, you have been in like Indian wildlife conservation mm-hmm. just by your family, that, which is so freaking cool, by the way. Do you have any ideas on what you think you might find? Or are you just like, I don't freaking know. I, but we're, I'm just as curious. What, what do you think might happen? I am very curious to see what is actually happening, but uh, there are certain forest types where I know that restoration happens much faster than other systems. So like if you look at a drier system, like a dry thorn forest, just because of the high resilience of the species in that system, you would have restoration happen much faster than let's say like an evergreen forest where the tree communities would take years and years to actually grow to their potential. So you, because you have really tall trees and then their canopies kind of have these undergrowths, 
So you wouldn't have the entire array of these species up until really late in time, just because it takes a really long time for these trees to grow. Right, right. And just like as a complete side note, when you just said that, one of the projects when I was in India was called Save the Giants. And it mm-hmm. was the save all the giant trees. And it was particularly on sacred grounds. Yeah. So just to think about how old some of those trees were mm-hmm. that we saw. I mean, just like hundreds of, and they were massive. So I can see how I can see what you mean there. Just like to actually say, is this fully restored? Yeah. It's going to take a couple centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I want to compare like these relocated sites versus sites where there have been no habit habitation before mm. just to compare whether these relocated sites ever get the same species composition or ever restored to the same potential as intact sites and so for i guess for certain systems it will take a really long time and i probably wouldn't see a complete restoration happen during the course of my phd right maybe not even your lifetime (laughs) or my lifetime yes Uh, maybe someone else will take it over Uh, it's just sometimes yeah it's it's hard to remember the scale that this is going to require the the length of time that this is really that we're actually talking about here because with everything just being wiped out so fast it's just so easy to see like 100 200 years of work just like gone and it's going to yeah. take that longer even longer to bring it back and so oh my gosh cannot wait to keep up with that and what you discover because just like you said what you find at the end of this could really actually change or continue what what the current policy is and I would love to dive into that for a second because from what I know and I've talked to people on both sides of the fences people that are like Mm -hmm. oh my god I freaking love tiger reserves look what they've done for wildlife in natural areas and then I've also heard on the other side that they're super controversial and that there is some big ethics involved I and I I hear both sides I completely understand both sides and where they're coming from and you and I started to chat about this in our last conversation about conservation ethics And I think I would love to bring that up now. What are some of the, maybe using Tiger Reserves as an example, Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you've recently learned about with conservation ethics and maybe what has surprised you and maybe what some of the application is to these areas that you think? So conservation ethics is a really new field for me. I've just started to dive into it because obviously the research that I'm planning to do is questioned a lot on ethical grounds too. But the way I see it, the way NTCA, the National Tiger Conservation Authority of India has planned it out is because it's voluntary and incentivized. I guess you could say that it's ethical and it's defensible for people like asking people to move out. Previously though, like when our national parks were established in the early 70s, a lot of these relocations were not ethical. And so I guess it's just, when do you think it is defensible to dispossess local communities for the name of conservation? And I mean, I don't know, I am not an expert in conservation ethics, but when you look at the Indian perspective, We are 1.3 billion people. Less than 5% of our country's area is under protected areas. And our average protected area size is less than 200 square kilometers. So you don't have enough space for wildlife. And where you do have space, you have people living in in that space too. So I guess at some point, you got to make the decision of whether or not you want to create more space for wildlife and how you want to approach conservation. And I guess having in the incentivized village relocation program is definitely one way to go about it. Mm, yeah, that was a really good answer. <laughs> Thank I, you. Yeah, yeah, and I, I completely, I completely agree. The more I just get into the the human side of conservation, God, these questions are hard. They're yeah. hard. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm 
like literally can't sleep at night because I have these thoughts keeping me up because I'm reading on conservation ethics and I'm like, whoa, what, what is this even ethical? Like, am I doing the right thing by like looking into this? Yeah. Yes. No, you are answering. You are working on answering a very important question. So please don't stop. Just go take some melatonin or something to go back to bed like no but I I completely understand because I'm a big advocate for predators Mm -hmm. and just from just as a biologist we need our predators but inherently they are dangerous and there is nothing that no one that actually knows predator biology can say differently like Mm -hmm. they are difficult to live with our rhinos are difficult to live with elephants are difficult to live with and so it's like, where's the line, the hum- humanitarian line of, okay, this person literally just had their house taken out from like an elephant. Or I, when I was in Nepal, someone died <laughs> from a tiger. Like the yeah. next day I saw the tiger that actually killed a person the next day. Like that's real. That is so yeah. real. And like these stories are just going to continue as mm-hmm. populations get bigger. And so like, what is the ethical thing to do? I don't yeah. freaking know. <laughs> I, I want guess, more wildlife, but that yeah, will all be at the cost. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's easier for us because like we already are biased towards wildlife right. and conservation to be like, oh yeah, moving people out is the right thing to do. Because I get into this convoluted argument of like, I get it that in, in the early days when this relocation wasn't incentivized or voluntary. People were technically evicted of their lands to create these national parks, and which was wrong. But then if you look at it, wildlife has a right to its areas too, right? Like, I mean, people were in wildlife areas and evicting them was definitely wrong, but then wildlife has rights too. So it's, it's, once you get into it, it's like a really bad vortex and you can never get out. <laughs> it's like one argument just leads to the other and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, I have that exact same feeling all the time, all the time. That's why it's just so important to talk to all the stakeholders, like all the people mm-hmm. that are a part of the conversation and just try and hope that we make the right decision in the long run. I mean, we can't lose our species. We just, we can't lose anymore. So it's like, how, what's, what's the compromise? And it sucks that that's the question. Like, what's the compromise? Yeah. It is all about compromise basically. mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Because you're going to tell us. (laughs) In the next three to four years. Yes. Yes, the next three to four years. Well, rewild algae is definitely still going to be around. I don't know what it's going to look like in 2025, but I have no no intention of stopping this. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> good. And so hopefully, because I mean, I have some other really good friends also in India, and might even mm-hmm. go try to do like a uh, travel series there. So maybe could hop over and see you too, and we can see what you're up to whenever that's going to happen. That would be really cool. I'm going to be there next year. So, yeah. Well, snap. Maybe I got to figure out next year. But I'm year. going to be there for like at least six to nine months, if not more. So you can oh. definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of like tiger it. areas to visit. And I haven't ever been to Southern India. So I'm definitely going oh. to check that off my list. Oh, now really? that I have potential study sites there. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, I saw my first tiger down there and I cried. <laughs> I that was oh, me when i first saw like we drove into the serengeti i i literally oh, cried because i'd never yeah. seen anything so vast and beautiful so <laughs> oh i totally understand i get that one too i've been to the serengeti i exactly i i know that moment when you pass the gate and you're like serengeti mm-hmm. selfie yep yep i totally know that one so I have to ask, since you've grown up in the wild and you've mm-hmm. been to these really cool places, do you have a particularly crazy or wild story that really sticks out to you? Okay, so I probably have very little recollection of this, but it actually happened. So this must be when I was around three, three and a half years old. My dad was running this project on, what was it, striped hyenas and bulls in Western India in a place called Kutch. 
which is basically this island of Gujarat, which is just a dome-shaped little island right next to, we're technically bordering Pakistan. And it's a very arid area and they just wanted to look at ecology of, so we've we'd radio collared a lot of them. And the way you would radio collar them was you would bait them with cattle carcasses and then wait for them to set foothold traps around the carcass and then just go check trap lines in the morning. And I guess we they'd probably radio collared a hyena in the morning. And there was this colony that used a hyena colony that used to live there. And because there was a leftover carcass in the evening, my dad was like, oh, well, let's go look at the carcass. There would be like the entire hyena colony feeding on this carcass and we could get like some amazing photographs. And so we drove down to where this carcass was and we were all watching these hyena pups eat from the carcass and they would have been basically, I I don't know, probably like three, four months old hyena cubs and I was sitting crouched down next to my dad while he was photographing them and one of these hyena cubs was because it was a habituated colony came like sniffing around and actually thought I was like something very interesting so it came and like sniffed me and my dad actually has a photograph of me and the hyena cub like literally that close and it's sniffing me and I was like a really small kid so I guess he was like oh this is probably a little too close for me to be comfortable with what if like the hyena just picked up my daughter and just walked away that wouldn't be cool so he picked me up and put me back in the car but the photograph is there I'll probably try and find it I don't know where it is but oh my gosh because my dad was so close to us and he was like I have to capture this but also like oh my god is is this even safe (laughs) that's incredible Oh, just thinking about that also from your dad's perspective, like it totally makes sense to someone who loves being out in nature that much that his daughter is having this once in a lifetime, almost dangerous experience with a hyena. But you have to click the photograph like you need proof for that. (laughs) I don't think my mom was very happy about that. No. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure there was a stern conversation at the end of that day. I don't remember that, but the, the, the story is cool. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely incredible. And then to turn it, I guess, on its head here, there's also another question I'd love to ask everybody that comes on, and that is that our journeys are never a straight line, and there's usually some ups and downs along the way. Have you had any particular struggles or anything that you've had to overcome or that you're currently going through that you would be okay sharing with us? I guess starting grad school (laughs) was one of them. Just because I was out of the school system for almost three years between my master's and before I started my PhD, it is very overwhelming. And I guess a lot of us have this imposter syndrome of whether we're supposed to be here or not. But yeah, I I guess if you are passionate about it, you're definitely supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah. I guess another thing is probably just being a woman in the field of wildlife and just overcoming that like back in India, because obviously sexism is a big cultural aspect of you working in India. It's just something that you have to have in the back of your mind and just, I guess, pull through because you can't change people's perspectives. So have you had anything in particular happen or just Um, more of like how you're treated? It's just how you're treated more of. It's basically if you like I've experienced when you're working in a team and you are a bunch of guys and girls, the forest staff would always like disregard your opinion, but like look at the guys for whatever they had to say. And I mean, it's just, it's a lot to do with culture too, because I get it that they, these people come from a very different cultural background than we do, but it sometimes gets really irritating and it gets on your nerves because you're like, dude, I'm right here. You can like, it's exactly what I said. So yeah, it it does get to you after a point of time, but yeah. How have you found to handle that? Because there are a lot of us that, you know, are listening that have gone through similar things or maybe Mm -hmm. someone is currently dealing with that. How have you figured out how to work through those instances? 
I actually haven't figured out how to work through them. But I guess if you are persistent enough, I mean, sometimes it's also drawing the line of like, what do you want to confront the person or not? If it's getting, sometimes I guess I'm the kind of person who would be like, if it gets my work done at the end of the day, if I'm getting the data I need, it doesn't really matter. But I guess for other people, it's like, no, it's like just ethically not fair. Yeah, I've definitely had that conversation. I've definitely felt that way myself too you know in both instances I mean luckily now I feel like I'm further enough in my career that I don't know it still happens I just like I'm like I'm just gonna show you and you're gonna listen you know (laughs) it's just like to that point I'm just like yeah, oh, it gets a little difficult when you're working in like rural parts of India. Like oh, yeah. Be like, I'm just going to show you because I mean, it's the communities you're going to work with for the next few months or years. And you don't want to spoil those relationships either because you depend on them. So it's it's a fine line. I'm still learning how to walk it. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like. I've had this exact same conversation with so many guests now, like, you know, other female guests that I've had on that I feel like, I don't know, we need to have almost like a powwow or some sort of like meeting of the minds and to chat, like brainstorm how to deal with this because it it can get really irritating after a while and annoying because I mean, you know, you're capable and you're out there doing this and it's just that you, because of your sex, it, it doesn't matter as much to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think on that. <laughs> Let me see. I've literally had the same conversation. It's just, it's just crazy how it really is. And I mean, you as you know, people that come on here from all around the world. So it doesn't matter our backgrounds or where we are working. Mm-hmm. This is a very common theme. And so, like, how can we supportively go through that and that it is tough it is tough some days where you just like wow you're just making me feel incompetent for no reason when I'm perfectly competent yeah that's that's definitely difficult to go through I guess on that too I mean what advice then do you have for anybody listening what is like a particular message or something that you love to share for anyone who's wanting to do field work or is doing field work I guess the only thing I can say is Animals are not the only dangerous things that you will encounter out there. So be careful. Do you want to elaborate? Just beware of people too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because like when I was going out in the field, just because I'd come from a very protected environment and had been out with my father so much, just going out there alone, you, you in the back of your mind think, oh, because you're in the wilderness, you have to be careful about animals and like just wild creatures around you. But a lot of times it's not them. Hmm. Just be aware of your surroundings and have fun. I guess the whole idea of this is to have fun if you enjoy field work. Right. No, those are very good advice. Those are very good. Just always have a, an open eye. And yeah. Completely, yes. completely understand in the exact same way when I'm in the field or anytime I'm abroad. It's like I'm enjoying myself, but you always have to have that open eye. Mm-hmm. So. So obviously you have so much going on and I'm sure that someone listening might want to get in touch with you or follow your work as you are making these pretty landmark discoveries and that really might shape conservation in India. So how can someone possibly get in touch with you or follow what you're doing and what you're up to? So I am pretty active on some social media platforms, Instagram for one. I'm trying to be better about Twitter, still learning how to tweet properly. Me too. But oh I, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I already know what's going on on that platform. <laughs> yeah, I'm still orienting myself towards Twitter. I think grad school made me realize that Twitter was a really good resource to have, which I did not know before that. So, but I guess otherwise, just email and I'll get back to you. <laughs> and are you okay putting, saying what yeah. your email mm-hmm. is? Yes. So I am harshiniyj at gmail.com. Perfect. Perfect. And yeah. And I will make sure all of those are available online at rewaterology.com. But Harshini, thank you so much for sitting down and teaching us about rhinos and dolphins and possibly what might be the next biggest study for what's going to happen in Indian conservation when you're done with your PhD. So thank you. And I can't wait to catch up and keep everybody up to date. (laughs) Thanks, bro. This was amazing. This was so much fun. Yes. And I'm going to keep you posted on what I find 
hopefully fingers crossed it would be good stuff <laughs> let's hope fingers crossed <laughs> because we uh, we don't know what's gonna happen if it's not so <laughs> but we will cross that bridge when we get there <laughs> another phd idea this yeah. <laughs> not doing this <laughs> awesome well thank you Ah, such a fun conversation with Harshini. We'll be sure to keep you all posted on her research as she moves along her PhD journey. If you have a specific question you'd like to discuss about today's topic, head on over to Rewatology's YouTube channel and submit your question in the comments section of today's episode. Thanks again for being a part of the Rewatology community. And as a community, we rely on your support to keep this show on the airwaves. And so if you would like to go beyond and support the show in more ways than just listening today, first, the zero cost of ways to support the show include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the Rewildology YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show, as still, again, this show has not been monetized, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners, non-negotiable. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Bailey, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. All right, until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.